Hello, all you wonderful listeners. This is Julie Baumgartner, and welcome to another episode of Rise Up with Julie Baumgartner, where we talk with specialists in their field of expertise to encourage, motivate, and equip those with big dreams to rise up and achieve their goals. Our guests bring valuable tips and resources to apply to your own life and go forward on your path to success. Our guests have a following either because of their expertise, have given back and invested in their communities, or have engaged in relationship building contributing to their success. Today on Rise Up, we have two special guests who have agreed to come and be a part of a question and answer style podcast on the Christ Followers Faith. Kemp Holden has been involved in ministry, leadership, and pastoring since the mid-1960s. He has spoken all over the world in diverse settings and is an astute scholar of the Bible. We also have Steve Dixon, who is currently a pastor of a non-denominational church in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Steve has been in ministry since 1972, and he has vast experience within every level of ministry. He has taught and encouraged many people around the world and is a compassionate voice of wisdom in today's time. I appreciate you both being here. And the reason that you are here is because I have known you both for a long time. I know you to be scholars of the word, great men of integrity and faith. And the topic today is the Christ followers faith. And we're going to do questions and answers. Some of those questions have been polled from youth, both in the United States and abroad, specifically from Europe. So we're going to tackle some subjects here that I hope are very interesting and encouraging and enlightening um, to the listeners. So unless you'll have something to say, I'm going to ask the first question. Yeah, you said tackle. So this is a contact sport we're it is. into here. It is. It is. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, can you be a Christ follower without following all of his teachings? Kip, go ahead. I think before I answer that, I think that I'm going to make this statement. I think that as a Christian, sooner or later, you have to come to grips with the question, is the Bible God's word and is it true? And maybe later we can talk about, can you actually prove or disprove the truth and the reliability of the Bible? I personally believe that the Bible is God's word. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. It reveals to us God's will for our lives. And I base this upon many scriptures. I've been a student of the Bible for uh, over 60 years. I, I'm in the Bible, I read the Bible, study the Bible virtually every day. One of the scriptures that, that came to my mind is from the actually from the Living Bible. Listen to this. The whole Bible was given to us by inspiration from God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. I like this language. It straightens us out and helps us do what is right. It's God's way of making us well prepared at every point 
fully equipped to do good to everyone. To me, that, that is a, that's a powerful verse and gives to us the significance of the word in the life of a believer. I, I, I agree with that. I would like to say, I think that there are many who identify with Christ and his teachings that are not Christians, and the distinction being that they have not taken an act of faith to say, I choose to now not only follow the teachings, but to believe in the Christ of the teachings. That is a, a point that uh, I think separates a lot of people today. I identify with a lot of things, but I would not give my life for all of those things mm-hmm. or put my faith in those things, perhaps. Do you think to be a Christ follower, there has to be a consensus of who Jesus Christ is? No. Again, in, in the teaching of Christ, because there is such great moral substance that is as healthy for all in the teachings of Christ, <clears throat> but people can identify with that. But I do think in order for them to be, say, I am to become a Christian, and they may want to call themselves a Christian because they are following the principles that they feel that he taught as a good teacher. But to say, I do, as the scripture says, I make a personal confession that I don't only ascribe to the teaching, but I believe that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And I I give my faith to that. That is Christianity to me. I'm totally, I'm totally convinced that the only, the only way to becoming a Christian, to become a Christian, is that you have to receive Christ as your Savior and declare him as the Lord of your life. Base that upon Romans 10, that if thou shalt confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, the promise is emphatic. Thou shalt be saved. And I love this next verse. Whosoever whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the distinguishing mark of being a Christian. A Christian. Well, I don't think any of us follow. We try to follow the standards and the guidelines and the teachings, but we are all imperfect and we all fail and we all sin. Um, but Jesus is the way for us to be forgiven as well. I think perhaps this question was in regards to drawing a line, seeing how, seeing what was acceptable, perhaps maybe acceptable from other Christians is when we're talking about following his teachings, well, we're not supposed to lie. And well, some of us do. So if you lie, can you still be a Christian? And then I hate to bring this up even so early, but I mean, it's, can you be a homosexual and be a Christian? A straightforward answer. I don't believe we can willfully, knowingly violate the principles and the commandments of scripture and be a Christian. I think there are some things that we do that, are, that transgress against 
what is the biblical mandate for us in following Christ. And we are forgiven as we ask for forgiveness. But I do think there are some willful acts of our own desires that move us totally away from becoming a follower of Christ. And we are pursuing our own selfish ambitions. So you use homosexuality as part of it. That, that is a big question, but it is also to the habitual liar, to the habitual thief, uh, yes. to, to mm-hmm. the whatever it may be, because mm-hmm. they have chosen to live for their own selfish motivation rather than follow what is the principles of Scripture that are laid out for us. Mm-hmm. When it, Excuse me. I, I think, Julie, I think I would add to this mm-hmm. that uh, I think there is a difference between telling a lie and being an habitual practicer. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And lying. Mm-hmm. That, that's not the same thing. And thank God for his grace. We all make mistakes, but, but the Christian does not embrace a particular practice that is in violation of the scripture and, and declare that that's okay, even though the Bible says that it is not okay. Mm-hmm. But if and when we do make a mistake, Thank God there is available to us grace and forgiveness. The Bible is very clear about this. It says, I will that you do not sin, but if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and if we will confess our sin, he's faithful and just, thank God, to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Julie, let me, I I think we're all on the same track, but let me Mm -hmm. add to that this. As historically, the prayer is known as the Jesus prayer, or we say the Lord's prayer. But Jesus, when he taught us to pray, he is understanding our humanity and wants us to recognize our humanity in that prayer. That's why we come to this place where we say, forgive us our transgressions as we forgive those who transgress against us and lead us not into temptation, etc." So there are... We, we're using that word right here, habitual sins. Mm-hmm. But there are, there are willful, continually willful tracking in a way that uh, is different than the daily transgressions that we find ourselves in. And I do have to add this. We all would want to qualify. We do this all the time. Mm-hmm. We want to say, well, I'm not perfect. I'm mm-hmm. not perfect. Like that's supposed to be the global excuse for all of humanity. Mm-hmm. The truth of the matter is the only perfect is what God has done toward man. Perfect is not what man can accomplish before God. The Greek word in the New Testament on many occasions, not all, but on many occasions, when it's speaking toward us, toward God, is maturity. And what he is asking for us is that we would grow and be mature as not children any longer, but adults in following his precepts and principles and letting the world see us as mature followers of Christ. So I think that really has a lot to do with us praying every day. Forgive us our transgressions as we forgive those who transgress against us. Mm-hmm. Just a thought. You know, you know, Steve, also, I think it, you brought to my mind something else. We need to understand that in the Christian experience, people are at different levels of growth and maturity. And our knowledge, of course, when we first become a Christian, 
is very limited. But as we grow in grace and as we grow in truth, we then begin to experience maturity. Right. The great things that helped me understand this as a, as a young Christian many, many years ago is these, I want you to think about these phrases. Number one, we are saved. Number two, we are being saved. Right. And number three, we shall be saved. Right. What in the world does that mean? Yeah. We are saved, as in the scripture, is referred to justification. That was accomplished by Christ on the cross. His death, burial, and resurrection justified us in the sight of God. Thank God for that. We are being saved. That's called sanctification. That, that word sanctification means to separate or to set apart. We are every day of our life by praying, by being in the word, by following Christ. We are moving closer to him and further from the worldly system. And then, of course, ultimately, we will be saved at his second coming. We're going to be made exactly like him. And at that point, we will experience that perfection that we've talked about. That's called glorification. Yeah, that's good. But when you, when you, when you, when you understand that, and this is a process, God is, is working on us. And as long as we are willing to allow the work to continue, we begin to move forward. What do you think the number one thing Christians would need to dispel among non-Christians for them to be, be willing to embrace the Christian faith? I would say, take your eyes off of me as the example and look to Christ. Follow me as I attempt to follow Christ. But at the same time, we've got to all fix our eyes upon Jesus, who is the author and the finisher, the perfecter of our faith. It is mm -hmm. not, but we, we all do this. We look, because we're human, we look at other humans to be the example. And we should be, a parent should be a good example for their children. A pastor not only needs to be a teacher, but a good example for his congregation. But again, here we go. We're just, this, we're humans. And, and we all tend to focus on someone else's inequity, some area, in order to justify our own. So we gravitate to those flaws. And it's a discipline to keep our eyes on Jesus. So what can I do? I can keep telling people as a dispenser of hope, look to Jesus, look to Jesus. I'll stand with you and we can look together, but let's look to Jesus and not look at what all the... Mm -hmm. Christians who are divided on so many fronts themselves. And that's, that's got to be confusing to someone who is considering becoming a follower of Christ. Mm -hmm. And if you are confused and you've had some bad examples, you've had some false teaching, some false education, who is Jesus? Mm -hmm. I'm asking for you all to define that now. Who, who is who is the authentic, true Jesus Christ? That, that, is, that, is, that is the most important question that probably can be asked. In fact, it was the answer to that that Jesus was seeking among disciple, his disciples. When you remember, he said, 
Yeah. Some say this, some say that, some say the other, but who do you say that I am? And Peter's answer was, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said, this is the truth upon which I'm going to build my church. I think, first of all, I think Jesus is the only begotten son of God. Jesus is the only person who has ever lived on this earth without sin. Number one, he is sinless because he is the only begotten son of God. I think, secondly, Jesus not only is the son of God, but Jesus is the perfect expression of God's heart. Jesus himself said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What do we see in Jesus? We see in Jesus a, a, a person who is willing to actually die in our place so that we can experience forgiveness for our sins. So, so Jesus is not just the Son of God. He is the absolute expression of God himself in the earth who died for us. And of course, death alone was not enough. He rose from the dead on the third day. He is the risen Savior. And what he died to purchase, he lives to provide. You know, Kemp, the disciples, when that question was asked of Peter and the other disciples standing there with him, until Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, they are wondering, is he really who he is? They saw miraculous signs, but still they were trying to put that into an intellectual rationale that made sense. But it is only after the resurrection that they see a supernatural event that takes place. And they have a supernatural encounter with him physically in, the, in, in, in that place where they were protected and, and hovering out of fear after the resurrection. So what I'm saying is it's one thing to try to, on one side of the resurrection, and I won't say it's a theory, it's a fact to me, but in the theory to a lot of people, on one side of the resurrection, we try to intellectually rationalize all of these events and who he is as a teacher. So our, much of our world today wants to classify him only as a teacher. But on the other side of the resurrection and the invitation to receive him as a savior, we accept by faith because that is a, that's a supernatural thing that has to take place. And it will remain a mystery to many until they personally accept it by faith. You cannot intellectually wrap your mind around the greatness of what happened in the resurrection and the fulfillment of God's plan when a person says yes to Jesus Christ. Well, and I, I think, excuse me, Julia, I, mm -hmm. I think I wanna back up here a moment and just point something out. One of the greatest stumbling blocks to the unsaved person, in my opinion, is what they would call, and rightfully so, could be hypocrisy or professing Christians who do not necessarily live up to their expected standard or even perhaps even to the standard itself. Mm -hmm. And I think that Steve's point was absolutely, 
absolutely so basically right. We need to say, we need to just be real honest. I'm not perfect. I'm a Christian, but I'm not perfect. I make mistakes as we all make mistakes, but there is one who is perfect and you will never be disappointed in that person and his name is Jesus. Well, Steve, you brought up a good point. I think there's a, a generation who tries <clears throat> through their intellect know who Jesus is and through their intellect try to rationalize and fit the Bible into this category of, okay, the, the Bible's good. We see value in it. It, it can provide some good morals that a society has. But then when you come to the miraculous, the resurrection, that's where they get tangled up in because they are possibly coming from an intellectual standpoint and not a faith standpoint and are possibly unable to see the miraculous or they have not experienced it themselves. And so it is the big question for them. And it, it has led to possibly not confusion, but it, it's, it's a line. They're like, okay, we're going to believe this in the Bible and this is good, but I don't know what to do with, with the rest of this. What, what would you say to someone? We don't know what to do with the rest of that. We don't know what to do with the miraculous we haven't experienced it. We haven't, we haven't seen it and probably have been taught against it. Yeah. I, I can stand in my doorway and have a conversation with someone that's standing on my front porch. They, they have no comprehension of what's behind me in my, my world, my home. But my open door is saying, I'm inviting you to come in to my world and now let's have a conversation about it. But as long as you're standing on the outside in the elements, and I'm standing here in this home that I've invited you into, we're, we're still going to be apart. So if you take that step and come into my house, then you will see my surroundings, and we can have a conversation about some things that you did not understand out there. I hope that's not too simple right there, but I really do believe looking on the outside of a expression of faith that says, I believe these things will not be comprehended. And then because you can even read the Bible. And if we're, if we're looking at it from a, a critical situation where we're trying to find the flaw rather than see the illumination of truth, then we're going to find the flaws and we're going to attach ourselves to that. But if we give ourselves to Christ and we look at his word and we're looking for the hope that is in it, that is going to be elevated to us more than those things that we have doubted in the flesh before. It is a deal of faith. I've heard all my life that guys use the example. Well, we all have faith. Yes, we do. The scripture says, but you have to have that. I have to have faith in that chair to sit down. I don't want to compare my relationship to Jesus Christ with my faith that I have in that chair. You know, I want to compare my relationship that I have with him in a faith that fills a void in my life. And, and that void, when it is filled with Christ, 
all of a sudden, many of the things that I do not comprehend, cannot comprehend, this side of the perfection of eternity, uh, I just accept by faith and enjoy the peace and the joy, the benefit of it, because there are many benefits to that relationship. I don't know if I've said anything that makes sense there to your question or not, but outside of faith, it's hard to, it's, it's hard to, so I say, come on in, come on in by faith and start the process of seeing his word and believing and see what God has to say to you through his Holy Spirit. Let's talk about the origin of the Bible. Some, someone explain the origin of the Bible. It's inspired writings of the Holy Spirit, I believe, all of the men who penned what we have today as the 66 books of the Bible were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Also, you will see in those 66 books a lot of historical data that is worthy of us establishing in our world calendars that we go by, understanding our world as we know it. So there's the Bible is so many different things, but it is really a revelation of God. It's a revelation of God. And then as we progress in looking at it, it's a revelation of part of God, which is Christ to us, and a revelation of the Holy Spirit. But it's a revelation of God to me. I think, I think the, the, the origin of the Bible is, is extremely important because if you think about this, and, and Steve mentioned this a moment ago, that the Bible is inspired by the how, Holy Spirit. How old is the Bible? How old is the Bible? Mm-hmm. Well, the, the oldest book in the Bible is the book of Job. That's the first book that was, was written. And, of course, that would date back. Steve's got to help me here, but the book of Job, I would think 3,000 years ago, at least. You got me. I don't know. I will tell you this. What is absolutely, what is absolutely amazing to me is that all of these authors who penned the 66 books of the Bible, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New, were from totally different backgrounds and, and totally different, different times in history. And yet, and yet, and I can say this with assurity, I've been a student of the Bible all these years. I have never found a contradiction in the Bible. I have found what appeared to be a contradiction. But when I did the absolute research and asked the Holy Spirit to guide me, I was able to find that that was really not a contradiction. And one of the greatest proofs of the Bible is the fact that so many things that we enjoy and experience today in our modern world were actually referred to thousands of years ago and not discovered until what we call recent history. That's intriguing to me. I'll give you an an example. The Earth's free float in space, that is actually referred to in the book of Job. In the first book, yeah. written in the book of Job, listen to this. He stretcheth out, this is Job 26, 7. He stretcheth out the north over the empty place and hangeth the earth upon nothing. Scientists did not discover that until 3,000 years later 
but it was actually true. That well, tells me that that wasn't just man's idea. Right. And, and I can go on. I mean, I, I, I recently did a little research on this. I can give you, I can give you off the top of my head, 10, 10 items that we take for granted today that were discovered in what we would call somewhat modern history. Well, give us, give us, give us three, give us three of those. You really want them? Yes. Okay. You're going to, you're going to fall out laughing at this. Mm -hmm. How about washing under running water? Mm -hmm. Listen to this Leviticus 15, 13. When he that hath an issue is cleansed of its issue, then he shall number to himself seven days for his cleansing and wash his clothes and bathe his flesh in running water and shall be clean. I'm sure you may or may not be aware of this, but doctors used to wash their hands in a basin with still water. What caused great concern is that a physician became so disturbed that the mortality rate of babies was just running so high and discovered that the doctor would doctor this patient, wash their hands in a basin, go and then doctor the expectant mother and carry those germs. And it was there in the Bible all along. Is it, 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 is, it, is, it was just recently discovered, not recently, but within the last couple of hundred years. I had possibly might know a few. One would be the, is it seven days for circumcision? Mm -hmm. And that is because that is the optimum time of when blood coagulates. Talking that science, that science has proven. Yeah. Talking about the blood, mm -hmm. I cannot let this pass. One of the greatest, one of the greatest items in the Bible is what I call information in the blood. Information in the blood. Leviticus 17.11 says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. Now, most of us, we don't even think about it. When we go to the doctor, we have to have a blood test. That blood test can reveal the condition of our health. It can reveal through a blood test whether or not we have diabetes, liver or lung disease, even cancer. Now listen to this. Not too many years ago, it was believed that sick people would get better if you would bleed them. In fact, the president of the United States, George Washington, when he got sick, they bled him to save his life, but it didn't work. We now know that sick people do not need to be bled. They need blood to get well. That was in the Bible thousands of years ago. Mm -hmm. I can give you seven more or 10 more, but it's just, to me, there is just solid proof that the Bible is true and the Bible is not authored by men in their own thinking, but rather godly men were moved by the Holy Spirit to write truth. And a lot of that truth was truth unknown to science at that time. I do not know what other universities teach, but I know that I was taught in my world religion college class that even they even disputed 
who wrote the books of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And they said that it was historically inaccurate, could not be proven. They also said that God changed from, it was either one way or the other. He changed from a monolithic God to a pluralistic God or, or vice versa. I'm not quite sure. And they said that history in the Bible, what was in the Bible did not line up. And so I kind of think it does. What can be historically proven in the Bible? What, what, what happened in the Bible that can be historically applied fact-based? I thought you would never ask that. Let me read you a verse. Isaiah 40, 22. You ready for this? Mm-hmm. It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth. The circle of the earth. Man believed from virtually the beginning of time that the earth was flat. Many and most believe that. The Bible was what inspired Christopher Columbus to set sail and sail around the world 2,100 years before that, the Bible said that the earth was round and not flat. There's so many examples of that. Uh, Julie, the Arab Bible, one time in Egypt, I was made aware of this. They read it to me from their Arab Bible translation that it speaks of in the book of Job, again, the oldest book that we know is recorded, that I would go to the place of burial among the kings in the pyramids long, 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 long before. So even trying to date the pyramids, they're looking at a writing that is the oldest book. And then an interesting thing to me is Cozy and I, while we were there, we had a little bit of time and we went to the Cairo Museum. Kemp, you've probably been there. There's There's a place in the Cairo Museum where Egypt does not, they'd love to be able to, to sanitize all of this from their history, okay? But it's given a little place that says, at such and such a time, I forget the exact language, but a multitude of people left Egypt and those that were, they, I don't know how, they made an exit somehow, and it refers to the exodus of those people. And now their history would not give account for any Egyptian people doing that at all. But that speaks of the time when, when God led the people out of bondage, uh, out of Egypt. And so that's, that is their history, and they can do their very best to try to say, we don't want to claim it, so we'll put it in small print somewhere and not celebrate it. But they have to recognize, their scholars have to recognize, it happened, it happened. That validates the whole story when it takes a place and puts a time on it in the Egyptian history itself. There are other things like that. It is in the exploration of space, as you know, that they have discovered what they believe is the Ark of Noah that is in the mountain peaks of of what was Ararat. Now, there's reasons in all the explorations and everything to go and find it. They've, they've, they've seen, they've taken pictures, but to bring back 
artifacts, etc. Political things have stood in the way. I personally believe that there's a, there's a scripture in the book of Job that says, consider the treasures of the snow. Mm. Well, if, they, if, the day, if the day comes that they are able to pull out facts from and wood from that is petrified and, and do so-called carbon datings on it, it will change carbon dating. I believe it. And it will change history as the world knows it, because you will have a timeline when there was a global phenomena that took place called the Great Flood. And I personally believe that time is reserved for the end times. And we, that's, that's a total other subject, not here. But that's there. That's there. We recognize that. So I think there are things that are being revealed often in our world that substantiate the fact this is what the Bible said, and this is fact that it has happened in our world. Steve, I, I've got to jump in here because, I, of course, I'm a, somewhat of a boat builder a little bit. Yeah. I built a couple of boats, and I love, I love boats. Listen to this. In 1992, which has not been that long ago, there was a major scientific study conducted by South Korean scientists that showed no hull model ever designed has been able to outperform the biblical model and the dimensions of Noah's ark. Those dimensions are given in the scripture, Genesis 6:15. Absolutely. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, the breadth of the ark 50 cubits, and the height of it 30 cubits. What that was saying is the length of the ark was six times its width, 10 times its height. Now get ready for this. This is the basic model for ships today, that particular equation. It's just, and it goes on and on. There was just, there's so much about, there's so much in the Bible that is just, just, just shouts at you if you take the time. In fact, it's a difficult read, but one of the great Jewish historians, Flavius Josephus, was a historian. And in, in Josephus's writings, he refers historically to events that we see in the Bible. Where do you put those who believe in evolution versus the Bible? How, how, do, you, how do you account for some of the archaeological findings that some would say dispute the Bible? They're pro-evolution, anti-Bible. I, I would say the evolution of man is one thing, but the evolutionary theory that man came from a tadpole that came up on shore, and before we know it, it evolves into, uh, and then a man. I don't agree with that at all. That's just me. Mm -hmm. and, and I have to say, Julie, in some of the conversations and debates, you just have to say sometimes, I'm sorry, I can't go there. I just, I choose not to believe that. But I do believe man has evolved and I believe there's room in the scripture because we don't understand all that happened. We know that God created the first man and the first woman, but we also know that when they, because of sin, had to leave the garden of God mm -hmm. and what was happening in the, the fall of man, let's just say, that, that I, I don't understand all of that because when you move away from the garden of God and a place where it was perfect 
and man communed with God daily into a world that is cursed because of the ground is cursed. The, the animals, you're not walking with the animals like you did in the garden. It's a totally different world. So we don't know. We, I, we don't have knowledge of how they responded, how they evolved to survive in their circumstances. So, but I don't think they went back to animal. I think they evolved more in, in, as God has created that's an interesting uh, take. Yeah, I've never, yeah. I've never heard it explained that way. Thank you. I don't know. That's my thinking on mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. I, I think, I think too, Julie. That first, first of all, let me just make a couple of statements. I, I really, I really don't have, a, I don't have enough faith to believe in evolution as far as the origin of man, for for a lot of reasons. But think about just one item, and there are so many items to think about. Think about human DNA. Population of the earth today, help me here with the most recent, is what, seven billion? Yeah, yeah, close? Seven billion. Mm -hmm. No two people, not only among the seven billion living now, but no two people since the first man and, and woman, Adam and Eve, no two people have ever had the same DNA. Right. You cannot tell me that that is just a an accident. There cannot be design without a designer. There cannot be art without an artist. There cannot be a creation without a creator. And, and yet God miraculously makes every single human different, mm-hmm. unique. Mm-hmm. To me, that that's powerful. I, I yeah. think when you think about that, I think, I think that's beyond. I mean, there's no way to explain that other than that there 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 is a creator. There is a God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Our our world has concerns. <laughs> we have there is suffering on this earth. There is poverty on this earth what does the bible say about poverty it's it is a product of our world it is a product of a lack of communication a lack of assistance it is a reality and the struggle is real it's not that it's not but the body of Christ, the church, has a responsibility to recognize those that are in this unfortunate place and do everything we can to assist them and to help them rise up out of their poverty. Poverty is much more than just a, a monetary reality. It is also an emotional response to a, a materialistic insufficiency let's say and that's a mindset that needs to be changed as well as the physical presence of things being changed and the opportunity that the church has to help to assist but also we do it how do we do it we do it in the name of jesus because we're addressing the whole poverty situation and not just the materialistic reality Mm -hmm. of the poverty 
So the church has a great responsibility. And I don't know that we really have done a good job of, of ministering to the whole reality. And just sometimes we just give them the coat and said, now be warm and we go on our way. But we, we need to do that in an attitude that lets them know there is a motivation in me to care for you. And that motivation is my love for Christ. And the love that I have for Christ helps me to love you, regardless who you are, where you've been, what you're doing. I want to care. I want to care. That, that is powerful, Steve. And, and I, think, I think I want to back up there and just pinpoint something, that poverty is not just the absence of food or clothing. That, of course, is, is the outward manifestation of it. And it is our responsibility to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, care for the poor. Right. What you said about poverty being, if you're going to correct poverty, you've got to change the mindset and the spiritual dimension. Right. And my wife and I, we lived three and a half years in a developing country in which there was grinding poverty. I mean, grinding poverty. When we, when we started that church in that particular community, the issue was not a parking lot because nobody owned a car. A few people rode bicycles, most all of them walked. But when we begin to preach the gospel and share the message of Christ, it's what I call the lifting power of the gospel. All of a sudden, I remember one young man, the first time I saw him, he had one pair of, of blue jeans full of holes a t-shirt that was more ragged than you can imagine, and his shoes were cut from rubber tires and tied on his feet with vines. But he heard the gospel, responded to Jesus, became a powerful Christian. Let me, let me just move fast forward. That young man, his son graduated from the university and is an engineer. And that young man eventually became the pastor of that church. And when you go to that church now, the issue there is how do you find a place to park? Because there's so many cars that are there. It's the gospel. It's, it's called the good news. And, and you, know, you know, we've seen an abuse of the prosperity, quote, the prosperity gospel. But the truth of the matter is that the gospel properly preached, properly understood, actually gives people a new lifestyle and a new hope and a new faith and a new confidence that I can change these circumstances through the power of Christ and his word. And, and I agree with you, but I think we need to use extreme caution when oh, yeah. we su suggest that if you become a Christian, you will prosper. I know many wonderful, sincere sincere people of faith who in, in all in all levels of income it, it, it's it's interesting i understand what you're 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 saying pastor and i'm not contradicting you right. i just i just want to clarify because i i think there has been a lot of misteaching yeah. on that well yeah. julie can i can i offer this just mm -hmm. as a thought let's go back to the garden for a minute mm -hmm. When man sinned and he was ashamed, he first conversation after that, God is looking for Adam. Adam, where are you? Where are you? And he said, I am naked. We are naked and ashamed. And God 
and said, who told you you were naked? Mm-hmm. Now, that's, that's an interesting thing. I can go to foreign countries all over the world and they are happy and fulfilled and satisfied with the simplicity of life. But because I don't measure their simplicity as something that's good, I I compare it to my capitalistic world that I live in, and I say, oh, but you are poor. Mm -hmm. I'd like to turn around sometimes and say, who told you you were poor? Because you're, you're happy that your family sits around the table, and you may not have three meats to choose from in a meal, but you have protein on the table and, and you sleep well at night. You don't have cable and Facebook, but my goodness, you guys love each other. I think the ideology that we come from transcends into our interpretation of how other people are supposed to see life. And I think that that is the problem with what you were saying a second ago, mm-hmm. that many Christians have built a ideology mm-hmm. of Christian that is not, it, it's flawed and it needs, it, it needs some correction, really it does. And then we go and try to give that ideology with those. I'll give you just a quick thing. I got, this just happened. My father's 85 years old. And I sat down with my dad the other night and I asked him, I said, I just want to talk to you about something. How old was my grandpa in 1919 living in Arkansas? And uh, he said, well, he'd have been 25. So my grandfather and my dad family, they lived in, in Russellville on a place called Crow Mountain. Now that's expensive property today but it was Poorsville back in those days. But I said, I am so grateful to God, and I'll shut my story up here, that Grandpa Dixon woke up one day and said, we don't have to live in this sharecropper's world that we live in, in poverty. There's a migration to the West Coast, and let's move out there. And when I told my dad, I said, Dad, thank you that Grandpa Dixon moved to California and when he got there and he got a job and you went to school, your ideology about life changed. I am the product of that change that took place with them moving from a, a horrible place of, of poverty that is not only just the materialistic poverty, but also the travesties that come with not understanding the world as God wants us to see our world and people. I left biases behind. I am, I'm free to be able to enjoy today because he picked us up and moved us away from that, that ideology. I know that's a long old story right there, but I really do believe that we as Christians have got to get a handle on this, that the ideology of the kingdom of God is what we have got to promote and not the ideology of our own prosperity, not the ideology of our own political positions, but what is the thought, the beliefs, the process of thinking about the kingdom of God, and we present that to a world. I Several years back, I read, well, it's probably been five years ago, an article written by a young man who, had, who was considering not attending church anymore. 
So regardless of where he was coming at mentally, he did have this valid point as to what the church and Christians considered blessings. And it was all tied up in, God, I got a new car. God blessed me. I got a good doctor's report. God blessed me. And he was like, so God is not blessing the other people? The, the people who didn't get a new car, they're not blessed? And he was like, there's more of us who cannot claim those financial, tangible gains. And he said, you know, he had a, he had a problem. He was like, does that mean God does not love me if I do not prosper? Does that mean God does not love me if I have family members who are ill? And, you know, I think, I think all this kind of, kind of ties together. We need to be selective in, in knowing God and knowing that his blessing is for everyone and that he loves everyone and that it is, it is the perfect equality system set up and it is not it's not measured by god's love is not measured by financial gain absolutely but in order for us to do that we have got to make sure that we teach what the scripture teaches in the area of blessing and not just build our 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 teaching off of somebody else's experience Mm -hmm. i mean the bible trumps somebody's experience all day long Mm -hmm. But many times we are just going by someone's testimony of what, how they see it, how they mm-hmm. view it, and then we, then we add a scripture into it to try to justify it, rather mm-hmm. than building off of the foundation and the principle of what is the blessed life, because mm-hmm. it is a blessed life. The first thing you said, I'd just like to say if I was talking to that young man, mm-hmm. I would say, I pastor a church, but I've thought about leaving several times. <laughs> Why? Well, but then I talked myself back into it. No, it's the best thing afloat. <laughs> so I'm going to stay with it. If, if we're going to talk about perceptions of Christians, there's a lot of perceptions about Christians. I think we mm-hmm. could talk about one would be perhaps our moral compass is and why do we believe that our moral compass is superior to someone who is a non-Christian who lives rightly by their standards? You know, I'll, I'll jump in and say, Christian or non-Christian, mm-hmm. for me to place value on life in all regard is is critical but now i can't ignore that my feelings on that are derived from my understanding of scripture but i i think that we should all if it's a person's a follower of christ or not should value life and if we value life that is not only going to be unborn that is also going to be the the personal expressions or choices of individuals, but that the sin does not separate the value that we should have for the brotherhood of humanity. 
I, I hope that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I think I think the central thing needs to be for all people everywhere that we would just value one another. We may not agree with each other, but that's where it always ends. Mm-hmm. Because today, if you don't agree with me, I want to dismiss you. And but I, I think we just need to value life. It's been mentioned a couple times, Julie. The uh, concern that some would have in the, that that are that have chosen an alternate lifestyle. See, I I value life to the point that I believe all life is divine designed by God, not by my choice or my desires that are my own it, that are selfish many times, most of the time. But I believe in divine design. If it's the unborn, or if it is the adult or the child who chooses to say, I choose another sexual identity than what I had. I, I don't believe they're going to find happiness walking away from the divine design of God. And they will come to a place, perhaps, and I've dealt with a lot of people that have come to a place, well, this is not satisfying the void that I have in me. And I don't want to point a finger of condemnation, but I do want to offer a hand of love and be there for them to let them know the one who loved you still loves you. He's always loved you. And there's room at the table if, if you're willing to say, I've done this selfishly and now I, I choose to do it your way and not my way. I think, I think that uh, all of us, all of us, I know in my own experience, all of us have known people that were extremely morally upright that were not a Christian. They had high morals, they kept their word, they, they paid their bills, they were faithful to their wife. So I, I, think it's, I think it's, I don't know that it's even fair to use that to, to compare moral standards with Christianity, because no question about it, the Bible is a book of, that teaches morality, human responsibility, and all of that. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, all of my good, all of my good works and good deeds and my morality is not enough to save my soul because my good works will not earn me salvation. I think that we need to value, celebrate, and appreciate any person who takes a stand for honesty, for integrity, for responsibility, for morality, for faithfulness, yes. for dependability. That needs to be celebrated, and those kind of people become great friends, I want you to know. Yeah. But I think at the same time, that really should not be the standard by which we can eliminate the value of, of the Bible or of Christianity. You said you cannot earn your way into heaven. And it, it, I just had a thought. If you are someone who does not believe in the miraculous, miraculous healing or the resurrection, how could you believe in, in heaven? And if you, to me, you have a moral compass because there has to be an end game somewhere. You, 
do you do things just simply because it's the right thing to do in this life? Or do you expect some sort of reward at the end of your life? And if you were not a Christian, what would that reward? I think that there, I think people today, I think people today really lack an understanding of what it means to be a human being, that we are a triune being, spirit, soul, and body. And I think that oftentimes the absence of that information causes them to be unable to, to I lost my lighting here, yeah. <laughs> to, to be able, see if I can help a little bit. Yeah, you went to the dark side there. I just <laughs> yeah. thank you for turning it, it back them, on. It causes them to be unable to, to process the fact that every one of us, every person on the planet today has an eternal value. And I think that, that the tendency today is to equate everything in humanistic terms. We live in a very humanistic culture. And, and that, that's, that's very contradictory to an understanding of the Bible, the purpose of, of man being on the earth and, and God's intended purpose for us. And I think the absence of that kind of information causes people to struggle with, with uh, gaining real direction and peace in their lives. You know, a real simple thing to consider is when we are so preoccupied with the way things are right now around us, we will not think about life after this life because we're so concerned about making this life be all and all and all rather than I am investing this life for another life that I will enjoy with the Lord. So I, I, I think selfishness, Julie, is probably one of the greatest problems that man has, that sin has caused in our world, is that we look inward for everything, for all of our values and our and we're, we're almost all narciss narcissistic to mm -hmm. a great degree right mm -hmm. there but we've got to learn to look beyond yeah. and and look into what god has planned and purposed not only for this life but for the life to come so yeah it's an interesting subject but do i have to believe in eternity with god in order to be a christian I think that's one of those things that I evolve in understanding to mm -hmm. as I am studying his word and I am living in a relationship with I love what Kemp said about the triune being because the spirit of man is really created for God to commune with. Mm -hmm. And our soulish man, our mind, will, and our emotions, we're working those things out and we're growing in knowledge and understanding. But God has reserved a place for him that he has breathed life into that is going to live beyond. I was sitting with this man right here, Kemp Holden, at a, at a retreat with a bunch of guys on, on a board. And Kemp were eating breakfast. I don't know if you remember this or not, but he made this statement. Somebody said something about a dream or whatever. And Kemp said, well, you know, your spirit never sleeps. And so he just kept eating his breakfast. I stopped and said, hold on, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I know that, 
not just in theory, but I see that in the scripture that he never sleeps, he never slumbers. And I know the value, but talk to me about this. And it was an interesting conversation that we had around the table, all of us, about how our spirit is always in tune with. It's like that open channel that God has with us, even when we are asleep, even when we are in transgressions. Uh, we may call that conviction, you know, but our spirit is always in this open channel relationship where God is speaking to us. I, I want to say, are you ready for this? For believer and non-believer, because he is still prompting the heart, the soul of man, somehow, some way in the deep of, of a person's triune being, God is, is relevant and he is speaking. So I, I love that. That's, that's a big, big thing to me to wrap my mind around and to really look at we are fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God through being a triune being. Well, Steve, you just you sparked in my mind something here. There's a verse in the Bible that says, the spirit of the Lord, mm -hmm. is, uh, the spirit of man is the candle of the Lord. Yeah. And, and that's an amazing that's thing. Uh, unsaved people have that, that receiver in there that God can, 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 can confront them, can, can meet them. They, they may not know what all's going on, but, but God is able to deal with them. Thank God for that. that that's Amen. just absolutely uh, incredible when you think about it. It's, it's the work of the Holy Spirit, and thank God we're not in this world without the, the work and the presence and the, the, the wonderful activity of the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. Absolutely. What could Christianity solve in our present day and culture? What could Christianity solve in our mm -hmm. present day and our present culture? Christianity is still the benevolent arm to a world that is in crisis or in need. I, I think we are to do as we've been asked to do to attend to the widows and the orphans and to those that are in prison and to be Christ-like in all regard. I think we have to personally show how as Christians, we can stand in the midst of the theories of the world, the religions that are around us and the political influences that are around us. But how do we live out a better life through the principles of the kingdom of God? So keeping our wits about us in the midst of the confusion is probably one of the greatest witnesses we can have and that's a help. That's what we can do to invite people out of the confusion and into a peace that is very tranquil because of Christ. My response to that, my response to that question, Julian, that is a very good question. And I think, I think I'm speaking now as a Christian leader. I think, I think that is something that Christian leaders really need to ask themselves. And I would encourage them to commit to paper the answer to those, uh, the answers to that question. That's very good. The first thing that comes to mind is I think that Christianity can effectively address the monumental global problem of hopelessness mm -hmm. right now. Hopelessness is, is probably the number one disease in America and in most nations. People are desperately yeah. wanting to hear 
something that gives them hope. And the gospel, the gospel, I don't want to be, I don't want to be too simple here, but the gospel is referred to as the good news. It's the message of hope. I think the second thing is that the, the church, Christianity, can address the problem of the endangered family. And the family is in big danger today. I don't want to, I don't want to get off sidetracked here, but I'm going to tell you something. The problems that we're seeing in, in the demonstrations and the violence and all of this, those problems can never be solved with politics or with money or with more government programs. One of the leading causes of the, the tremendous problems that we face in this country is the deterioration of the family. And the church needs to be a place that gives the tools, the vision, the challenge, the equipment to, 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 to have a strong family and to meet, your, meet, meet the needs of your children in that family. I think, I think the other thing is that the Christianity can address the problem of lack of love for your neighbor. That, that's, that's a biblical cliche, but you need to think about it. Jesus taught that your neighbor is anyone in need. My goodness. Who is my neighbor? Jesus answered that. Mm -hmm. Anybody who is in need. That's where the church, I believe, has the opportunity in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of all kinds of different voices. I think this is where the church, in a loving manner, presents a message of grace and truth. And notice, I put grace before truth. They'll never listen to truth unless they see grace. That's right. I'm off of my soapbox right there, but I, I feel <laughs> I'm taking notes. That's good. Go for it. How would you be a Christ follower in everyday life? What would that look like? I think Kip just really hit it when he said, and I wrote this down, mm -hmm. who is my neighbor? Mm -hmm. And that is anyone who is in need. I think one of the greatest witnesses that we are a Christ follower is that we place value on every one and that we utilize every opportunity to place value on people. I, I, I wish it would become, I, I would love to see it become. And of course, I'm not there yet totally, but I try to say thanks. I try to be gracious. I want to be giving. I, I teach that we need to always have seed in our hand to sow wherever God teaches us or, or speaks to us to sow. But I, I think as the body of Christ, we just need to condition ourselves and discipline ourselves to in everything we do, do it as unto the Lord, the scripture says. And that will be a, oh, but that'd be a game changer for our world if we would do that. Yes. Yes. Why is Israel important in, in, in a believer's life? Why should we, why should we care about Israel? Uh, Julie, I think, I think that is a very legitimate question in today's world. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give a, a brief answer. Hopefully, I will do that. I had the privilege, I had the privilege of sitting under one of the, I guess, one of the greatest prophetic teachers I guess the greatest prophetic, te prophetic teacher I have ever met 
Uh, he was actually the, the person who planted my home church where I grew up as a boy. And I was exposed to some tremendous insights. And one of the things that, that just two or three things really come quickly to mind. Number one, Israel, what is and was God's covenant people. God made a covenant with Israel. It's referred to as the Abrahamic covenant. A part of the Abrahamic covenant says, I will bless those that bless you. If we want to live in God's favor, we need to live with a favorable attitude toward the nation of Israel. I think the second thing is, it was actually the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, that gave to us our Messiah. Jesus was, of course, a Jew or an Israeli. The Bible in the New Testament says there is actually some benefit to that, that, that Christ came from them. I think the third thing is this, is that prophetically, prophetically, we haven't even talked about that uh, here today. It's a whole new different deal. But prophetically, there is a powerful prophetical future for the nation of Israel, and nations need to recognize that. And history will prove that nations who have favored Israel have experienced God's favor. History, history has proven that? Yes. Give, give examples. An example is, is America. America. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One, one, one of the greatest allies Israel has ever had has been the United States of America. And I get very concerned when there is anti-Semitism in our country, and I don't want to go there today, but that, that makes me nervous because I think, I think that you're, you're, you're touching something that is very dear. God has some, and I'm going to go a little bit further with this, God has some unfulfilled promises to Israel that are yet to be fulfilled, and we need to be aware of that. I ask this question because you will not get this teaching in any other place, but perhaps in church regarding Israel or, or, or passed down <clears throat> from a believer on the importance of Israel. And, and unless teaching such as this continue and, and go forward, there's, there will be elements of, importance drastic importance that's going to be lost in generations mm -hmm. unless we pick up the mantle and 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 teach yeah julie just to weigh in on this because i wouldn't want my silence to say i disagree with anything that's being said i'm in total agreement with where you guys are i think something i have said to others that promotes a conversation israel was chosen by God for the purpose of him who choosing some people group in order to establish what I would call a real-time movie so that we could see human behavior and God intersecting with man. You could see man's attempt to commune with God and his failures in doing so, but then God's restoring the tearing down, the building up, all of these things. And as Israel has gone, so does the world go when it comes down to it. So we need a backdrop that we can look at. You know, one of the problems with some of the postmoderns today is they don't have a sense of 
history to attach to in order to project their future. We, we, we can sit and talk today with confidence about our future because we see how God has illustrated things and yet those things that are to be fulfilled. We, and he said, keep your eyes on Palestine. It would be keep your mm-hmm. eyes on Israel and watch the signs of the time through the lens, not of American politics, but keep your eyes on the eastern sky and watch for eastern sky again. But now Israel itself has become the target of the world because it was the birthplace of the Messiah. And it is the returning destination of the Messiah. And the world religions that have recognized that are opposed to that. And all of the nations that are gathering against, they're not just gathering against a piece of property and a a nation. They are rallying against God himself because of the Judeo-Christ-centered reality that came from there. So, and and I, I grieve over the fact that many textbooks today in some settings are trying to sanitize the, the, all of the things that happened in the Holocaust, for instance, etc. Because if we do, Julie, to your point, society will repeat itself. Mm-hmm. And can I say those that are anti-Semitic, they are also people who will set, set silent when there is genocide going on in other parts of the world. So it's not just about the Jew. <laughs> it is a mindset against humanity that does not do things the way they have formed an ideology that they feel is good for all people. You know, you know let, let me just insert something here. This is a term we're all familiar with here. We, we've heard this all of our lives, the Judeo-Christian values mm-hmm. that are so important in America. And, and there is, in, in my opinion, there is a threat. If, if you think about the history of America, that's always been a part of American history, is the Judeo-Christian values. That's, that's a common term. But today, we, we, have, we have a lot of voices that, that are opposed to that and want to remove that from our fabric. And I think that's a very dangerous thing. And I think... The Bible admonishes us, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And Steve, I want to tell you this. You said it was on my lips and you, you said it. Not only was it the place where our Savior came, it's the place where he's coming back. Yeah. I mean, the Bible is crystal clear that his feet will rest upon the Mount of Olives. Yeah. That happens right. to be in the land of Israel. Right. This is a question submitted from someone who does not live here in the United States. They are observing our political climate at present. And they say, what is the real issue between Republicans and Democrats or conservatives and liberals? Do you believe that the liberal is a deceived person or can a Christian be liberal too? If so, do you think conservatives are better Christians. <laughs> oh, I shouldn't have laughed. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, living here in America, in mm-hmm. the midst of this political environment that mm-hmm. we're in, wow, it'd be fun to sit on the other side of the planet and to look back at this and try to figure this one out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know a lot, let me say it this way. Mm-hmm. I pastor a diverse congregation. 
the various ethnicities that are there. Probably 30% or more of my congregation is black, okay? I also pastor, by, by means of that, I pastor a two-party church. So that's the answer to, my, to the question for me. I believe you could be a Christian and be a Democrat. I believe you could be a Republican and be a Democrat. I believe you don't even have to vote and be a Christian, you know? But I, I, I believe politics is different than who we are in the kingdom of God. And, but I do think we should not abandon things that we feel are values of life for individuals of all regard and working toward an equality and a peace for all people. Oh my goodness. I, 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 I haven't voted for a person in a long time. I voted for pieces of a platform, but personally, I haven't voted for a total platform in a long time. But that is the world that we're living in. Mm -hmm. So that's where I'm at. I, I, I do believe a person can be a, a Democrat and a Christian. But I also have some that feel like Jesus was a registered Republican. And mm -hmm. that is, that's hard to deal with, you know, mm -hmm. because that is just, and if, if we take, I will quote, I will quote here, Tony Campola, many years ago, sociologist, he made this observation. He said, one of the most difficult things that ever happened to the conservative party in America is that we allowed a group of denominational leaders to classify many years ago, a party within a party called the moral majority. Hmm. Now, what's that to say? If you don't line up with me, you are immoral. That, that, that's, I don't think we need to do that. I think it's okay to say that's liberal and that's conservative. But if we want to play the God card, then we're all out of our league. And because I want to tell you, God can be God in a dictatorship. And God can be God in the countries where we're not permitted to preach the gospel. We are blessed in America, and we need to handle the opportunity we have in a, in, in a more thoughtful, prayerful way than what we do. I think perhaps, well, I don't want to assume, but I, perhaps the question came from their observations uh, in the division of people. Our, our America mm -hmm. is divided, mm -hmm. but the church is also divided by this. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's obvious. It is very obvious mm -hmm. that we are. But I, again, I have to say there's a political platform for the Democrats, a political platform for the Republicans. But then five, six, seven, eight of Matthew is a platform of the kingdom of God. And that's where I want to focus and live within the tension of this world government as much as possible knowing that I'm not in it, but I am, I'm in it, but not of it. I belong to a greater kingdom. Julie, I think that, I think that my response to this question by this individual is that from a personal level, I believe that before I am a member of any political party, I am a member of the kingdom of God. Yeah, that's it. Before I am a Republican or a Democrat, I am quote, a Christian with that said, being a Christian, I then have embraced kingdom 
values. That's the most important thing to me. And I think the church, one of the things that the church needs to do right now is to, to create a culture in which people can disagree politically and not have to leave the room. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I'm very concerned that one of the things that, that concerns me more than perhaps anything else is the attack that is taking place in America on free speech. This, this really concerns me that you cannot, in a peaceful manner, in a redemptive manner, share your views and your opinions without creating great conflict. That's, that's not the way it's supposed to be. I think that Christians uh, should vote and voice their biblical beliefs and their convictions. You're still a Christian when you go in the voting booth. My approach to that is I am interested in the, I am interested in the, the biblical perspective that appeals the strongest to what I believe to be biblically right. What the political name on that is 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 not that important to me. I want to know. I want to know. Does this line up with what I believe in the Bible and what the Bible says and what I personally believe to be to be true? I think in addition to that, Christians need to become informed on the issues. One of the one of the greatest weapons of Satan, the nation against the family, against the church, against anybody, is ignorance. We cannot afford that. And I would encourage every Christian, every Christian, you need to get involved in your community at the grassroots level and do everything you can to be a voice for God's, for God's kingdom and God's, I mean, we're, we're admonished to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's our first assignment. You suggested that people become aware of and involved in their community and that they should be educated on the topics yeah, informed mm -hmm. so what is the church's role in providing that for their congregation providing those opportunities leading leading that charge i'll give you a brief answer to that question because I think that is I think that is a legitimate question. I, I think that I think that the I think that the American pulpit, I'm going to talk about America for a moment. Mm -hmm. I think that the American pulpit does not have to get political to be biblical in the presentation of truths. And I think I think that that Pastors have a responsibility to address issues that are addressed in the scripture, not in a combative way, or it's, it's grace and truth. And, I, and I, think, I think the truth of the matter is that the Bible addresses some very, very important issues in our lives. And it's not necessarily going to be popular but we're really not in a popularity contract, uh, contest, but we do need to be presenting truths. And I, I'm very concerned that we have, we have allowed ourselves to, 
to be led down the road that I need to be, I need to make this where everybody likes it all the time. And that's not necessarily the assignment of a minister of the gospel. You know, political <laughs> ads, political ads have evolved to the place where it's, it's, it's almost like hate crimes that, that we're talking about how much we should despise this person and their view. And as a result, people are making their decisions based a lot of times on what they are told out of an angry think tank mm -hmm. rather than setting down and acquainting themselves with the issue. If a person will read for themselves the mm -hmm. platform Mm -hmm. of a party and then evaluate that, mm -hmm. that would be different. But answering the why is the big issue. Why is that so important to them? Mm -hmm. uh, and if I don't know, I need to educate myself on that before I even have an opinion about that. Mm -hmm. So I, I, Kip said it earlier, ignorance. I, I, I think it is. I think it's, that's a problem that we are we're not educated on the issues and the why behind the issues that are out there today, because there are some things that we don't need just at face value to make a decision on. We need to investigate why is that so important and why are so many people rallying around that? Why is so much money being spent on that? And then we can prayerfully make a decision that is based on knowledge rather than on the opinion of other people. I want to be respectful of your time. If you can hang in there with me just a little bit longer, if we can kind of do a speed round <laughs> on some of these questions and, and they're not going to be in any certain order, but these are, these are questions again, that were submitted. What about creation? Evolution has so much science-based support. Do you believe that this evidence was planted by the devil? Julie, I don't, I don't think, I think, I think once again, I think, I think people have reached conclusions without doing the research. Yeah. And I think, I think, I think the other thing here is I heard this week a number that is really somewhat amazing to me, 80%, somewhere in the neighborhood of 80% of the professors in our universities are from one particular persuasion. And so consequently, we're raising a whole generation that has never heard the full story. And unfortunately, unfortunately, we're raising a generation of younger people that have really never been, been informed with the biblical facts on creation. And so I think I think that that is a that's a major issue right there that mm -hmm. that we really need to seriously consider and I, I think I think churches need to seriously consider what is the curriculum that that our children are being systematically taught are we just babysitting or are we really educating these kids to where they grow up with an understanding of this and I think I think that I think if you really do the research on creation you have to you will come to the conclusion that, that there is a creator and that none of this is just by accident or happenstance. Yeah. I almost feel that Christ followers, we're going to have to up our game a little bit in, in some areas. I did not realize 
what my son, when he went off to college, would have to know in advance to dispute what he was being taught. And he was not, he was not equipped in Sunday school or, or Bible teaching to counter what was being suggested to him as truth. And so if you, if you do not have that foundation going in, I could see where you would be easily persuaded that that is the truth because you you have not been you have not been taught the truth. I think I think Julie and this is just uh, this is just something that I've thought about here recently a whole lot. And and please I'm not I'm not suggesting that we need to return to something of the past although mm -hmm. I will raise the question and I will raise this to anyone. Mm -hmm. If you're going to and I'm going to I'm going to sound like a Baptist right here, but if you're going to discontinue Sunday school, show me something that is better. Mm -hmm. If you're going to replace it, let's replace it with something better because I think we have reached the, the realization that our, our, our kids and young men and women are not being schooled systematically. Mm -hmm in biblical truth. Mm -hmm. That is very concerning. Moving on. Okay. What do you say about Yahweh being a combination of certain Canaanite gods, as some archaeologists claimed has happened? What does that mean about Jesus? I would say you can't prove anything that is really from a mythological standpoint and Again, it's, it's, to me, the art of the game for some is to create confusion about the real in order to sell you where they are. That's just the art of the game. It goes back even to what you said a second ago on the education to break down what we have thought in order to examine all other possibilities. That's the art of the game. And... But now a biblical position on it is we know that Satan has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And, and to destroy, we may think that that's just destroy our buildings, our house of worship, etc. Well, but just to destroy our confidence, to destroy our allegiance, our, our honor, our value, to destroy those things that we've held precious. So I, I think the art of confusion is something that we've always seen that's played into the various religious views. Was there just one Satan or could there have been many? What support does scripture give to Satan being immortal? Where did evil come from in the first place? I think that, I think that that's a whole bunch of questions, but... <laughs> give you the rocket version mm -hmm. well if we go to the, back to this if you go to the bible yeah. you will discover the origin of satan mm -hmm. uh, satan was re, was an angel rebelled against god because of his rebellion was kept out of heaven consequently he be, became very anti-god and sought and was successful in deceiving the first man and the first woman and bringing the curse of sin upon them and upon generations to come. I believe that Satan is 
a, 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 an individual, a person. I think that he has power. I think he also has under his uh, authority and oversight a host, a host of demons. I'm doing a study right now on the order of spiritual warfare. There's a verse in Ephesians that has really got my attention these days. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against one, principalities, two, powers, three, rulers of the darkness of this world, four, spiritual wickedness and high places. If you do the research, you discover that Satan is, number one, his satanic realm is highly organized and highly committed. And if you think about that, that's the reason he has had the level of success that he has had. And I think that, that we need to recognize that, not to glorify Satan, but the Bible warns us not to be ignorant of his schemes and devices. We need to understand we really are in a spiritual conflict and Satan, Satan, his one design, Pastor Steve said it, is to steal, to kill, and to destroy anything that suggests anything of God himself. Yeah. The, the Bible has a few verses that talk about abortion, but the Old Testament talks even more about taking care of the poor, the sick, the wounded, and the foreigners. The quantity of these topics separately is equal to or greater than the verses that talk about abortion. Would this not suggest that the church should focus on these topics as well? Why is there so much emphasis put on the unborn when the foreigner and the orphan also severely lack a voice? How can the church change this? Remember, this is just one of the greatest crit criticisms that the world has against the church. Well, when, when abortion was put in a political context of legislation, which you cannot legislate morality, when it was put in that box, all of a sudden, it became isolated in the view of the world away from all of these other things that are still responsibilities of the church. I, I don't know that there's more of an emphasis on abortion than there is ministering to the poor and the needy in our world, but it is viewed at differently because it has been put in a political context of legal and illegal. We're not dealing with poor being illegal. That's, that's not a part of, that's my phone, sorry about that. But we are dealing with reality of what's happening in our world. I don't know if that makes sense or not. Yes. But when you, when you categorize, here's the deal, Julie, whenever you mm -hmm. categorize something, you have a potential of, of criticizing it to the point that you can eliminate it mm -hmm. if you categorize it. And we've done that with abortion and put it in a context that I don't think it needs to be because it needs to be started right here in the heart of individuals, regardless what legislation is. Just my thoughts on it. Mm -hmm. Julie, I think it just it immediately pops in my mind. If you think about this, if, if, we, if we, the reason I think that there is, and I agree with Steve, I think that there is more focus today on taking care of the poor and the needy than there is on the mm -hmm. abortion issue. Mm -hmm. I think I agree with that. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think there is there's something that needs to be considered. 
if we know that, and you, you guys can help me with the numbers, what, what, how many abortions take place per year right now? What is that number? Does anybody know? I can't tell you. I, I don't know. Exactly. I know. I know there's almost 60 million, but I don't know if that's since or if that's annually. Okay. But I have that number in my head. We, we know that it's a lot. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We know that it's thousands and thousands and thousands mm -hmm. and thousands. If, if this country, if this country knew that this many people were being annihilated, this country would do something about it, I think, if they were adults, being, that many people being killed. Mm -hmm. I think this is why this is such a serious issue here, is that these are, from my understanding and my belief, these are real people. Mm -hmm. And that one of the reasons that somebody needs to speak up is that these innocents cannot speak because they're never given the chance to speak. I would like each of you to take a turn. And what would you say to someone who is listening to this podcast and they have not had exposure to Christ and, and the message of Christ? I would say investigate it. It's, it's, it's worthy of investigation. And we, 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 anything that we feel like can add value to our life, we investigate it. I would invite you to investigate what it means to be not only a, a, a one that ascribes to the teaching of Christ, but a follower of Christ by faith. Because there is a dimension there that you can only experience once you have taken that step of faith to say, I receive you as my Lord and Savior. So I would say, don't be afraid to investigate it because of what other people are saying or what conventional wisdom is saying today. And it, it, it can stand even your critical analysis. It will, un, it will stand up under all the scrutiny of theories, beliefs, etc., because it is the truth. It is the way, the truth, and the life. It's, it's in following Christ. My answer to that would be this to a person who is not a Christian. I would say today that number one, don't be afraid to ask the hard questions. Yeah. Number two, I would encourage you to get your hands, if you can, on a Bible and read the Gospel of John. It's just 21, it's 21 little chapters there. Read the Gospel of John, which will give you a little bit of an insight as to who Jesus is. The third thing I would do is I would encourage you, if you have this opportunity, talk to a friend who is a Christian and tell them that you would like to know more about Jesus what can you tell me about Jesus? Mm -hmm. And I think that that's where you can begin that journey. Mm -hmm. Have we adequately dis discussed some of those hard questions today? And are there questions that you have encountered throughout your tenure as pastors that you would like to bring forward now and discuss? Yep. I think, 
I think that, Julie, I think that it's been a very, very interesting time of discussion. And I think, I think that we have, I think that we have addressed these questions. I don't think that we have exhausted the answers to these because these are big subjects and entire books and volumes of books have been written on some of the subjects that we have talked about. I think there are some resources out there and in spite of all the bad things that can be said about the internet, there's information available on the internet. Right. Which right. People can seek a, a, a deeper answer. And as far as, as future questions, of course, naturally, I, I'm a guy that believes mm -hmm. in questions, mm -hmm. but at the moment, I, nothing comes specifically to mind that that I would like to see addressed. If I do think of something like this, I'll be happy to communicate that to you. And I want to thank you for putting yeah. us together mm. and hosting this. Mm. Absolutely. I, I, I want to say I think you've done an excellent job in, in presenting questions from those who have participated with you mm. and covering a lot of bases. They really have. I, for one, think that the answers are out there if we will research them. One of the things I do is I call Kemp Holden and ask him what he thinks about things. And that brings a lot of clarification and peace to me right there. Julie, the one thing that I think is a, it's, it's a stark reality to the world today is we are followers of Christ, the church, but why is there such division in the church? You know, the unified effort of, the church could be one of the greatest witnesses in the world. And Ephesians 4 says that we got a job to do until that happens. Mm -hmm. So we're not there yet. We're not at that place of maturity in the body of Christ. So I'd say to somebody that's disturbed over that, understand we're growing up. We're trying to figure this thing out on how to sit at the table with one another and how to receive of the things of the Lord together without our, our territorial distinctions that we have created that, that define too many of us. Because Ephesians said it, there is one God, there is one Jesus Christ, there's one baptism. There, that's what we've got to do is somehow get those divisive things out so people can see the unity of the body of Christ. I know that's gotta be confusing to a lot of people, but it's, it's confusing and troubling to me as well. I want to say thank you for the invitation and thank you for the opportunity thank you. Thank to, you. to share our thoughts on this. And I've, I've enjoyed it. Always love being you. with Kemp and, and Julie. I have such great respect for you, not only on this podcast, mm. but what you do in your service for the kingdom of God and your love for oh. people. Thank you. Thank You've you. been listening to Rise Up with Julie Baumgartner. Thank you for listening today. Rise up and let's be the best that we can be and listen to this podcast that will both motivate and educate. Thank you.